Think about the perspective of the disciples for a moment. By the time we reach the end of Luke 22, they must have thought their whole movement that they devoted years of their life to, all sorts of travel to, all sort of resources for, has unraveled before their very eyes. Their Lord and Master had been overcome, taken into custody, and would be put to the worst of Roman punishment. In their minds, you can hear the squeal of their brakes and the sound of them fleeing. Luke 22 tells us a myriad of distressing things that from their perspective must have felt overwhelming and give the sense of failure at the core. At the beginning of Luke 22, Satan seized upon Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. He makes a deal with the religious leaders to betray Jesus for silver. At the upper room later on in the Last Supper scene, Jesus tells his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And they couldn't believe it. They began asking one another and of themselves which of them it would be. In verse 31, Jesus says, Satan demands to have you all. To sift you like wheat. He even tells Peter specifically, Peter, before the night ends, you're going to deny three times that you know me. Before the rooster crows, it will happen, Peter. In Gethsemane, Jesus faced the turmoil and the agony, not of the crucifixion, but of the substitution, weighing heavily upon his heart, sweating profusely, praying fervently. His disciples were no source of spiritual encouragement. He goes to them who ought to have been praying and been watchful and they were asleep every time. Woefully unprepared. In verse 47, Judas arrived in Gethsemane with the arresting crowd. Roman soldiers are part of them. Officers of the temple are part of them. Some Pharisees and some chief priests. All of them making up a motley crew of individuals who've come led by Judas to give the kiss of betrayal. And they take him away. And then in verses 54 to 62, Peter, in the courtyard of the high priest, doing what Jesus said he would do. Denying not once, not twice, but three times before the rooster crowed. All of this while Jesus is facing his own accusations and questions of the religious authorities inside. That brief recap, friends, that would suggest to us, from the disciples' perspective, it looks like everything they work toward is unraveling. Where is hope and encouragement to be found? They have all fled. Peter has just denied and now left the courtyard and wept bitterly. We come to a trial scene, a series of scenes of Jesus with authorities. A couple of huge takeaways From Luke 22 in our passage this morning, Jesus' prophecies prove true. What he said would happen to him and what he had said much earlier on that would happen to him, not just that week, but said earlier on in his ministry and multiple times throughout. Here's what's coming for me. The trial scenes of Jesus portray the fulfillment of his prophetic word. But they also reveal a second thing. They reveal his innocence where the Jewish and religious people are struggling to find 
justification for a guilt that they can rightly accuse. And especially among the Roman scenes, Pilate and Herod, they're willing to say, we can't find guilt in this man. And so we find together with these two takeaways that Jesus' prophecies not only prove correct, his innocence takes him all the way to the cross so that it can be clear to all, Jesus dies not for his own sins. The innocence of Jesus is preserved in the trial scenes so that in front of the Jews and in front of the Romans, we see the blamelessness of Jesus and the wickedness of sinners so that the cross will be the wickedness of sinners borne by him, the blameless one, that he who knew no sin would become sin for us. What is Jesus prophesied earlier on that we see these scenes fulfilling? One example would be chapter 9.22. He says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. If I could tie Luke 9.22 to our scene this morning, here we see Jesus being rejected by the religious leaders in its most formal sense, if you will, where the very Jewish high court itself called the Sanhedrin, their council, will declare him guilty and blaspheming of their laws. He's committed no such crime or law-breaking, but that is their insistence to the Romans. These trials are also a fulfillment of Luke 18, 32. He says, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated. Our scene today is Jesus before the Jews. We will look tonight at Jesus before the Gentiles. In Luke 22 and in Luke 23, he gives you the narration fulfillment of earlier prophecy. Luke 18 also says in verses 32 and 33, he'll be shamefully treated and mocked and spit upon. He'll be flogged and killed. Luke 22 and 23 give you the fulfillment of everything Jesus has said and very specific things he has said and by whom he would receive such treatment. And Luke 22 and 23 give us the fulfillment of the Christ who's come to fulfill this mission. Jesus is a righteous sufferer. And throughout the early, early hours of that Friday morning and leading up to dawn, the Jewish leaders are seeking to have their way. I want to conceptualize with you the Jewish trials, these scenes before the Jews. Luke has a very short scene, and when Matthew and Mark's accounts, along with John's, are put together with Luke's, we can see a myriad of, uh, of uh, stages, we might call them. We know that in John 18, 13, Jesus appeared first before the former high priest named Annas. And then he appeared before Caiaphas, which also seems to be part of Luke 22's passage today. And then the high priest, along with the council, renders Jesus guilty of blasphemy. And that is the third and final stage. So it's not just one single individual having their way, but rather some Jewish leaders and the gathering of their court together to say, we have condemned Jesus. The problem is this. These three stages of Jewish court ruling, can, or these three stages of trials or appearances, can't lead to them putting him to death. They, as a Jewish court, can speak about matters of their Jewish law, but they can't execute anybody. They must convince 
the Romans that Jesus should be executed. What we see today is Jesus before these Jewish leaders. And tonight, we will see how in Luke 23, Jesus is sent to the Roman leaders where they are wanting to convince the leaders of Rome, especially Pilate, that Jesus is guilty. In verses 63 to 65 of Luke 22, we're going to look at the mockery and beating of Jesus. And these are always unpleasant and distressing things to read. When we see the treatment of the one whom we know is the seed of the woman, the promised son of David, that king of kings and lord of lords. Behold, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. And they also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This is the mockery and beating of Jesus. It is the blaspheming of Jesus. While they would charge him with blasphemy, the case is quite the reverse. They are the ones committing blasphemy in this scene, refusing to ascribe to him what is true of him and charging him wrongfully with things. It says in verse 63, these men holding Jesus in custody were doing this. Well, who were they? Well, we saw last time uh, in verse 62 that, um, or not verse 62, in verse uh, 52 through 53, that people among the chief priest officers of the temple and elders had come out against him to seize him. And then in verse 54, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. That's the scene of verse 63. He's in the high priest's house. And the chief priests and the elders and other religious leaders, they're present, those who had kept Jesus in custody. They are not neutral. These are not people objectively trying to figure out the truth. They have already decided his guilt. And they're mocking him as they beat him. There is a receiving passively of abuse and mockery, scorn and rejection. He prophesied this earlier in Luke 18, 32, fulfilled now. He'd even told a parable saying a vineyard that was kept by certain people. It was received, there was a, uh, it was approached by different servants from the owner who were mistreated. And ultimately the son himself arrived and was killed by them. Jesus himself knew in his teachings and in his parables that he would face the onslaught of the Jewish rejection. And they, in verse 67 of Matthew 26, spit in his face and struck him with clubs and some slapped him. And Mark 14, 65, they spit on him and covered his face and struck him and the guards received him with blows. All of this is to speak of verbal and physical abuse in the high priest's courtyard. Given Jesus' renown among the populace, Given that he was daily at the temple, daily teaching them, daily present and answering questions and asking questions. It is stunning that someone of his notoriety and reputation was treated so shamefully before a trial even began. According to the other gospels, they were looking for witnesses that they knew were false witnesses trying to drum up accusations from somebody that was willing to say something. It is not Jesus violating the law in Luke 22. It is the Jewish leaders violating the law. Doesn't the ninth commandment say you shall not bear false witness? 
And yet that is precisely what the Jewish leaders are cultivating in the house of the high priest of Israel. The scene is disturbing in so many ways. It is a sham of a trial. So even as we call it a trial scene, we use that word trial quite loosely. This is not the pursuit of justice. This is not the seeking after truth. This is not the holding of true testimony. These are people engaging in mockery and physical and verbal abuse. They are rejecting Jesus. They've gathered together against the anointed one. They are not the only ones who will do it. Luke 23 says the Romans will as well. Now that language I've chosen quite carefully, even into the title of the sermon this morning. In in Psalm 2, there is an expectation that the people representing the nations of the earth are gathering together, together against the anointed one. One way to see Luke 22's trial scene is that here the Jewish leaders and later the Roman leaders, it's as if the nations are represented by coming together through these. These individuals and these groups against the anointed one of God. And they will seek to do their worst. They will scoff and they will seek to overcome. But read the remainder of Psalm 2. The Lord in heaven laughs. It is an absolute vain exercise in earthly power from them. They will not overcome him. They cannot subdue him. He has surrendered himself into custody because this is the long road of laying his life down. They think they're in charge. They're not in charge. He said, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, I could call upon my father and he would at once send me 12 legions of angels. You think these swinging soldiers and these mocking leaders are anything of any ultimate authority and intimidation? Not to the Lord Jesus. He knew this was coming. They should tremble before Him. In Psalm 2, it says, Kiss the Son lest He be angry, but they spit at the Son. Kiss the Son lest He be angry, but they struck the Son and slapped Him. Oh, they do not know the horrors of the actions they're performing. Jesus' most recent prophecies are being fulfilled. And in verse 64 of our passage, they also blindfolded him and said, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Further scorn and mockery, right? They're playing a game. Oh, what should we do? Oh, does anybody have a blindfold? This is like cruelty. The kinds of cruelty you would see with schoolyard bullies who see a vulnerable situation and say, what if we all did this to him as a group? It's unthinkable, it's unconscionable, it's cruel. They're striking him as his eyes are blinded. And they're saying, okay, they say you're a prophet, right? So won't you prophesy for us? When really everything that's happening, he has prophesied. Oh, the irony. Peter has just denied him three times before the rooster crows, which he had prophesied. Judas had betrayed him, which he had prophesied. Jesus had said he would be counted among the transgressors by the authorities in Luke twenty two fifty two, And where is he now? Counted as a transgressor in the courtyard of the high priest and treated shamefully. So while they say prophesy, he could very well have rightly said, I have. That's why this is happening. Some have suggested that in Isaiah 11 verses 3 and 4, we could have a background to this scene where those who have a Jewish background in the Old Testament 
would see that God's anointed one, God's future servant or deliverer, it says he would not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge and decide. So they're wanting Jesus to make some decisions. And if this Old Testament grand figure who was to come was going to not look on the appearance of things in order to render a right judgment, then let's see how Jesus will fare in that game. That could perhaps lurk in the background here in Isaiah 11, verses 3 and 4. The gospel writer is portraying to us a righteous sufferer. One that someone like Joseph foreshadowed. That Job foreshadowed. That Abel, in Genesis 4, foreshadowed. Jesus is the righteous sufferer, suffering at the hands of people, and it's not because he did anything wrong. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull the beard and I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Think about Isaiah 50 because that's not a gospel verse I just read to you. It's an, it's an Isaiah 50 verse 6 verse in the Old Testament, but it's a gospel story. Sometimes Isaiah is affectionately called the fifth gospel. Because among Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read these portions of Isaiah and the Messiah's work leaps from the verses and his suffering and passion just seem to be so strikingly described. I gave my back to those who strike. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That's Jesus in Luke 22 now, isn't it? It's Jesus. And in verse 65 of our passage this morning, they said many other things against him. Luke says, I'm just, I'm just going to give you a slice of what they've said. They said many other things against him, others against him, blaspheming him. The whole scene is one of blasphemy. In this mocking and beating scene of Jesus, things carry on through the hours of the morning, approaching the start of day. At this moment where a verdict is about to be declared of Jesus because of a back and forth with the group, and especially led by the high priest with interrogation, The arrival of the day signals the appropriate time for them to take their verdict and take their prisoner and send him on to the Romans, which Luke 23 tells us. So what leads up to that sending? The interrogation of Jesus given succinctly by Luke. Verse 66 says, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. The council is a shorthand reference to their Jewish deliberating body known as the Sanhedrin. It was a formal court. It was a ruling body of leading Israelites, made of Pharisees and made of Sadducees. It had 70 members. And then a chief leader, or sometimes called the president of the Sanhedrin, who was the high priest himself. As the Jewish ruling court deliberated cases... It would not be normal for them to be talking at three in the morning. So what I'm saying to you is these people who are gathering to render a verdict and these soldiers who are present and chief temple officers who are there to beat and to mock, they've been prepped ahead of time by a conspiracy. It's a, in other words, this is not in the break of day where people come to hear their cases. 
This is something happening in the dark hours of the night. And Jesus had already told them in, Mar- in uh, Luke 22, verse 53, this is your hour, the power of darkness. And the exercise of the power of darkness is happening in the high priest of Israel's house. The assembly of all of them gathered together in verse 66, led him away to their Sanhedrin, their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, then here's what we want from you. And it's reminded some New Testament scholars of the devil's words in the wilderness. If you are. If you are the son of God, then do this. If you are the Christ, then say this. Truly the power of darkness is on display and the influence of the evil one is felt in that room. If you're the Christ, tell us. Now the word Christ, we have to be so clear on what this title means. It's not Jesus' last name. First name Jesus, last name Christ. The word Christ is a title. It's an Old Testament title that means Messiah, anointed one. Messiah or anointed one in the Old Testament is equivalent to in the New Testament the title Christ. They're all looking for the 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 and 13, son of David. That was the prophecy from the family of David of one who would rise up from his offspring, who would be born a son, who would rule forever. He was the Christ. When is the Christ going to come? And here in the ministry of Jesus, some people are willing to say he's the Christ or they'll use the phrase he's the son of David. Same thing. Christ is a king. It means that one from the line of David, his offspring, his son. This is another way of saying if you're the son of David. The reason they would bring that title up is because that title's been ascribed to Jesus. Think of blind Bartimaeus. Here he is by the Jericho road. Son of David, have mercy on me. They tell him to shut your mouth, Bartimaeus. And he cries out all the more, Son of David. And then heading into Jerusalem on the first day of the week, palm branches and cloaks on the ground and a donkey heading in Hosanna. Blessed be the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. All of this language of royalty. The Pharisees were outraged and they said to his disciples on the first day of the week, or they said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They can't be saying that word. Oh, it must have just stuck in their minds for days and days. And now they bring it up at the hearing. They bring it up before the whole council. Okay, if you're the Christ, say it. Tell us. His response is so amazing. If I tell you, you will not believe. That's another way of saying what? I am the Christ. Because they want him to deny it. They don't want the disciples to ascribe it. And so if he says to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. What is the thing they are unwilling to believe? They're unwilling to believe that he is the Christ. They want every other alternative explanation. Thank you very much. We are not going to say that he's the king. The king of the Jews, the promised king who would rule the Psalm 2 anointed one. They're the ones gathering together. What an awkward thing it would be to declare that he's the anointed one. They would be the enemies of Psalm 2. They're the heroes in this scene. That's the story they've written for themselves. If I tell you, you will not believe. There's something that Jesus knows with penetrating insight there too. They've already made up their minds. They are not seeking the truth. 
They're not saying, Jesus, we've heard your teachings. We have questions. They're not saying, Jesus, we've seen your signs and miracles. Can we sit with you? That would be a wise move for them to make. They are the deliberating ruling body of Israel. They are comprised of Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priest of the land. It would be good that in this moment they would say, Jesus, we have you away from all the crowds. Now is the best opportunity. And we're just going to start at Joe on this end. And we're going to end with, with this guy on this end. And we just we want to sit with you. But Jesus says, you won't believe even if I told you. He sees the hardness of heart that's present. He sees the dullness of mind that is there. They are eager to crucify him. They are eager to at least send him over. That's what I mean. For punishment by the Romans. They've made up their minds. This is not an honest conversation. It's from time to time reminded interpreters of Jeremiah 38. In Jeremiah 38, King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet. And the king says, I'm going to ask you a question. And Jeremiah said, if I tell you, won't you surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you're not going to listen to me anyway. And so Jeremiah, it's as if the shadows of those prophets of old who dealt with unrighteous rulers are now being fulfilled in a climactic way in the scene in the high priest's house and there with the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. If I ask you in verse 68, you won't answer. Oh, verses 67 and 68 are fascinating responses. If I tell you, you won't believe. But if I ask you, you won't answer. This might remind them of the fact that earlier in the week, they had said, by what authority do you do these things? And he says, I'll answer your question if you answer one of mine. John's baptism, was it from God or from man? So Jesus knows that if he asks them a pointed question, or if they were to at least receive an answer from Jesus... His answers or his questions to them are not sown in hearts of anything but hardness, dullness, and animosity. If I tell you, you won't believe. If I ask you, you won't answer. And that's because they said to his answer earlier in the week about John's baptism, we don't know. They don't have spiritual discernment. They don't have an honest curiosity. They're not seeking but to destroy. In verse 69, he does give them a remark. This is a heavy one. This remark is so strong and so powerful with what it draws on the Old Testament that it outrages them in what happens in the rest of the chapter. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, language about the Son of Man doing something was earlier in Luke 21 that the Son of Man coming on the clouds. It's a reference to Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And the Jewish readers of the Old Testament would know that if someone is the Son of Man, it's the Daniel 7 figure, and is with God or seated at the power of God, it is a picture of exaltation and reign. Enthronement. So here, here, let's back up for a second then. They said, if you're the Christ, tell us. All right, so that's a, that's a kingly title. Kings sit, kings rule, kings are enthroned. Jesus says, look, if I tell you, you won't believe, but here's something for you. From now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. That is an absolute royal announcement. 
It is filled with enthronement language and authority language from Daniel 7. But the Son of Man is not described as sitting at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus takes Daniel 7 and he puts his hand out to Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here's Jesus drawing upon Daniel and drawing upon Psalms. And he says, I am the son of David and I am the son of man. These aren't two different figures. Those titles both apply to me. I'm the son of man who's been appointed to rule over all things. I am the promised king from David's line. And I will be at the power of God. It is a glorious statement in verse 69. Drawing upon Old Testament figures. The son of David and the son of man. So here's Jesus arrested. Here's Jesus beaten and mocked. And he's saying that he's the son of man and the son of David at the right hand of God. That's what they will see as true before this is over. That's a bold claim. That's a bold word to speak in the presence of the high priest. If Jesus had been just misunderstood this whole time. And people were saying, listen, Jesus, we're going to ask you some questions. Are you really the king? Because you know the kinds of seriousness we treat that claim with. It's Jesus' opportunity to say, listen, I know things have gotten out of hand, okay? I know what people are saying about me, and I'm glad you guys brought me here. We're going to clear this all up. We're going to clear this all up. None of this needs to go any farther, okay? I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to make things clear to my disciples. We're going to shut all this down. Well, of course, none of that happens. It would have been wrong had any of that happened. Jesus fully embraces and embodies these titles and roles from the Old Testament. He is the one who's come to rule and reign with all authority in heaven and in earth. So they said in verse 70, Are you the Son of God then? Because to put oneself equal with God, to speak of, a, of oneself as a king ruling, a, a son of man at the right hand of the power of God, it's to say something of oneself that sounds divine. And here's their, their trap. If they can get Jesus to do what they would certainly consider as blasphemy. To ascribe to oneself or to not reject words of divinity or roles or titles or responsibilities or prerogatives that belong only to God. If Jesus is willing to share in that, embody that, not reject that, that's good enough for them. Because they need something to say to their people. They need someone to say to their people, some representative or some message to get out. We heard it from our own lips. This isn't us acting rashly in the temple, taking him away. We had him on trial. We asked him these questions. He didn't reject any of these titles. He committed blasphemy according to our law. So in verse 70, they all said, and by this, I think we should mean they said, represented by the high priest, are you the son of God here? Are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. That's not a rejection of these words. That's a willingness to receive the words that they have offered. And in verse 71, they take it exactly this way. What further testimony do we need? We've heard it, from ourse- we've heard it ourselves. From his own lips. They don't need any more witnesses. They have enough to condemn him. And according to Matthew 27... 
The chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel to put him to death. And what that means is they have rendered a verdict of blasphemy. In Matthew 26, 65, the high priest tears his robe. He's uttered blasphemy, this priest will say. What other witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And the Sanhedrin says he deserves death. So all of this alongside with Luke 22 gives us the weightiness of this scene. The Roman officials are going to need proper grounds to execute someone a threat to the Roman Empire. The Jews are going to try to bend and twist things as much as they can to provide them. But as far as they know, we have a false Messiah. We have a blasphemer in our midst. And not only does he deserve to be beaten and spat upon and mocked, he deserves to die under the judgment of God. Little did they know, he will Die under the judgment of God. It is in the mysterious providence of God. These horrific events that are leading to an event on the cross. Where this one without sin. This one who is truly innocent. Will bear their sins. Think about what's happening in the room. They're spitting on them, on him and he's bearing it. They're mocking him and he's bearing it. They're blaspheming and he's bearing it. They're beating him and he's bearing it. He's bearing all of their sins in the room. He's come to do that. He's come to bear their sins. He's come to take their shame. And they are heaping it upon Him. And all of this is preparing for the glory of the cross. You see, Jesus is indeed all these titles that have been brought up in the room. Son of man from Daniel? Yes. The Christ, the King, the Son of David from 2 Samuel 7? Yes. Son of God? Yes. Son of God, Son of David, Son of man, and all they will do is revile Him. But in the room that night, every swing of their fist, every vile word and every bitter thought and every hateful gesture was borne by Jesus because he's come to bear all our reviling and bitter words, thoughts and deeds. He was taking their sins and they couldn't see it. He would be going to a cross as a perfect atoning substitute in the room that day is the Savior that they and we need. And our response, may it not be anything like mockery and spitting and revilement. That if we see the truth of Christ as Son of God and Son of David and Son of Man, this one who is coming to be the perfect atoning sacrifice, our response, our response is to look to Jesus with trust and faith. To come to Him recognizing who He is and what He has accomplished. To rejoice in Him and delight in Him. To in our hearts treasure Him. To exalt Him with praise and thanks. That in our hope in Him, we would honor Him and worship Him. May that be our response this Lord's Day to the Son of David, Son of Man, Son of God. Let's stand.